0: Welcome to The Best of Our Knowledge, a program focused on learning, education, and research. On today's show, how an interactive computer program can provide a new way to view historic art, a college course on doing nothing becomes the most popular class at a university in Wisconsin, and the White House's new student loan forgiveness portal is up and running. Hear what some college students think about it. It's all next on The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm your host, Lucas Willard. 19th century artist Thomas Cole is known as the founder of the Hudson River School of Painting. The English-American artist painted dramatic, romanticized landscapes, one of his most well-known being 1843's River in the Catskills. The depiction of what first appears to be an idyllic Hudson Valley landscape also tells a story of industrialization. A locomotive and a wisp of smoke hint at the coming transformation of American life. The Thomas Cole National Historic Site in Catskill, New York, is launching a new education prototype that will allow students to engage with the art in a new way. A program of the Jack Warner Gateway to Learning, Exploring American History Through American Art, presents an interactive digital version of River in the Catskills that includes the real accounts of people who lived in the landscape near Thomas Cole's home. To learn more, I spoke with Thomas Cole Historic Site Executive Director Betsy Jacks and clicked around the prototype.
1: Hello, and welcome to my home. I am Thomas Cole. Thomas Cole's paintings were not essentially about tourism and visiting. They were really about trying to communicate to people that this is a valuable, magnificent treasure, and that it's not gonna stay this way forever if we don't acknowledge that it's valuable. Um, so he was really sounding an alarm and that's what this painting is all about. That our game is based on the educational game, "River in the Catskills," is that he is showing the changes to the landscape that are coming through, and he's alarmed, and he he sees that the Industrial Revolution is coming to America. We thought if we came to this country, we would escape it, but now it's here too. They're cutting down the forests faster than ever. So we hired a digital artist to take this painting by Thomas Cole and break it into layers using the technology called parallax, um, which is where the different um, foreground to background layers are broken up so that when you move back and forth by panning across the page, it looks three-dimensional because the foreground moves faster than the background, just as it would if you were standing there. So it looks three-dimensional. And as you zoom in and out, the trees whip by you, etc. And so you can go and visit these places in the painting. They're cutting down the forests faster than ever. And when you come upon the house or the train, we've blown that scene up and added a little more detail than was there, just so that it doesn't look like a big smudge, so that it feels like you have gone right in there and you can meet the people Um, I just think it's incredibly exciting that we found the actual people. There was a little boy, for example, that lived in that Van Vechten house, Peter Van Vechten. And when he grew up, he wrote an account of what it was like to be in that house as a boy when the train was built and went right through his front yard. Did you see what's happening to our house? They're putting train tracks right next to it. The whole place will shake and fill up with smoke every time a train goes by. So here we have a firsthand account of how the Industrial Revolution was affecting a kid. The railroad itself uh, was being overseen by this man named Thomas Cook. And he was not only the president of the railroad, but also president of the bank. And so he financed this whole thing by getting everyone in town to buy a share of the railroad through his bank. And um, unfortunately, the whole thing then went bankrupt a couple years later, and the railroad only ran for a few years. So everybody lost their money. But when you talk to him, he was very excited about the railroad, and so was everyone else in town. Trains
0: will connect us to the new prosperity, and everybody wins. Children are... Very used to video games, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and 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 they grow up now using an, an iPad or another device. So uh, this isn't a big learning curve for somebody who <laughs> is jumping into this program.
1: No, it's funny. Actually, it was big, a bigger learning curve for um, my board of trustees, you know, because they didn't grow up with this. And so we're trying to convince them, like, no, this really is what, you know, this is going to be easy for kids. My kids, for example, uh, they just instinctively know that there are going to be hot spots in that painting where if you mouse over them, the cursor will change color and that's where you could click because that's just something they're used to. Um, So we've filled the painting with all of these hidden spots where you can um, dive in and learn a little bit more.
0: After the development and going through this process, what's next for Thomas Cole and the uh, bringing his work to more people through interactive media?
1: Well, this is a prototype, and so it's super exciting that we have a working model of this program that we can test and get feedback. And we encourage all educators and kids and everyone to go to this website, and it's free, and test it out, and send us feedback. Um, And then we plan to apply for additional funding to make it more user-friendly and more detailed. At the moment, if you click on something, it will give you a link to a you know, pop-up window of the primary source where that information comes from. So, with the character Peter Van Vechten, for example, the little boy in the house, if you click on it, up will come the original document where we got that story. Um, we'd like to plant all kinds of things around there in that painting, like you know, they call them Easter eggs, where you come upon these um, little discoveries. For example, there's a man in the boat who's um, on that creek and there's a lot of firsthand information about how the creek was polluted at that time and the fishing really um, dried up so that man in the boat could tell that story that he used to fish there and it's just really not working anymore um and i think that what is exciting about this is that it's a model that can be replicated with other paintings um we were just talking with a um an educator from the um From Columbia where they have um, a big educational digital department and she said I am so excited about the idea of being able to talk to characters in paintings I mean that's that's what you want to do you want to hear them what do they think what's going on Um, and so we can really learn about history because the thing about this painting and a lot of uh, paintings from this period of America is that these same problems are still happening Um, These are themes that absolutely are debated today. And I think people are, especially kids, are amazed that this is something that's been going on for 200 years. Even back then, there was this push and pull between development and preservation of the landscape. Absolutely, it's been with us. I mean, it's really um, a central (laughs) issue that we've been working on here in this country. So to go back and hear from multiple sides and not assume that your side is the only way of looking at it. There are other ways of looking at it. It's complicated. And I think it also encourages people to listen to more than one side of an argument, which we certainly need more of. Um, So our hope is that we can then replicate this with other paintings and have art serve serve a bigger role in teaching American history.
0: Betsy Jacks is the executive director of the Thomas Cole Historic Site in Catskill, New York. Listening to the best of our knowledge. Could doing nothing be doing something? And how could doing nothing allow us to be more productive in a nonstop world of information overload? A new course exploring the concept of doing nothing is the most popular class this semester at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. Developed by Dr. Connie Casser, an associate professor of religious studies, the one-credit course has gained national attention with the help of a viral tweet. I spoke with Dr. Casser about the class and her brush with Internet fame.
2: Yeah, I mean, who knows why things go viral uh, <laughs> when they do. <laughs> but um, yeah, so this, this course, I um, I developed it um over, over the summer, basically, along with about a dozen of my colleagues. And, you know, we just, we we're seeing our students being increasingly stressed out and burnt out, and it's kind of creating this sort of vicious cycle. And so a lot of my colleagues were we're trying to find creative ways to combat that and a handful of us have offered you know kind of optional sorts of things after hours or on the weekends or outside of class time and some students show up but then we started to think well hey what if we made this a course um you know that that would be something that would motivate students and so we created a course and it's called doing nothing and it meets once a week and students come they get academic credit for this course and um they learn skills to cope with stress. They learn how to disengage and not be constantly distracted by their phones. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of where this came from. Uh,
0: so doing nothing is actually doing something.
2: <laughs> yes, it's definitely doing something. Um, you know, I think these are these are actually what we're teaching in this class are actually skills. Um, you know, things like practicing meditation, things like getting up and moving around, getting enough sleep, even just letting yourself be bored. Um, these are these are skills that we're seeing that our students just don't really have that skill set. Um, you know, they grew up with phones and constant entertainment on demand. Um, so we're trying to really kind of push against that and resist that and give students some some skills to just Learn how to be bored, because we found that I mean, studies have been done. We all kind of know this now that the more sleep you get, you know, um, the, the more you kind of allow yourself some downtime throughout your day or throughout your week. That can actually lead to more creativity. It can lead to deeper thinking. These are the sorts of things that we're trying to teach in colleges and universities. Did you notice a big
0: shift caused by the pandemic with students' ability to deal with stress and just big changes in everyday life?
2: Yeah, you know, I think, I think there was a shift. And I don't know if I can say with any certainty exactly what that shift involved. But, you know, the pandemic and the lockdowns and shifting everything to online instruction, that was stressful for everybody. Um, And thinking about these students, the students who who I have at Lawrence, they're mostly 18 to 22 year olds and, you know, dealing with finishing high school or starting college and having to deal with all of the the stress that we were all under with the pandemic. I think we're seeing residual effects of that. I think we're going to continue to see residual effects of that. So, um, you know, I think this is this is part of why there was so much energy and interest in this class this year when we first decided to offer it
0: I think I saw you say that it's the most popular class ever at Lawrence <laughs>
2: <laughs> well not not quite but but at least at least this fall um, it's the the registrar just sent out to all of the faculty last week some you know statistics on enrollment and who's enrolled in which classes and so you know the highest, the highest enrolled class is a course that's required for all of our first year students. Um, and then the next highest enrolled class is this doing nothing class. So I think that says something about what students need um, right now. There's, there's definitely a hunger for this. Um, there's there's a, a desire. Students are, are understanding and they're recognizing that they're overworked and that they're stressed out. And they're looking for ways to cope with that. The description of your class
0: reminded me of Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing from 2019. And I think that that became more popular. I mean, being published in 2019, right before the 2020 pandemic. I know people who have read that book and taken advice from it. Did you read that book?
2: So I haven't read that book. Um, <laughs> I, I I know about the book and, you know, it's on my On my to read list, I know a handful of the faculty who I'm working with on this course have read that book. Um, But this is definitely since that book has been published, there's been a lot of discourse around this. I mean, and I should I should say the idea for developing this course at, at Lawrence University actually came from seeing some of my colleagues on Twitter talking about doing stuff like this, you know, so, so I don't think that what we're doing is unique. I think this is happening quietly at um, other institutions around the country. Um, And I think it's important.
0: Is this something that you think should be extended into high schools as well before students get to the college level?
2: I think that would be great. Um, You know, I think students right now, they're, they're so, um, um, you know, what, what I'm seeing in my classrooms is that students are feeling like if they're not being productive at any point in the day, then they're wasting their time or they're not living up to their potential or they're not going to get a 4.0, which means they're not going to get a good job when they graduate. And you know, there's, there's this kind of increasing stress that I'm seeing among students, first year students especially, coming right out of high school, um, and they tend to have this idea that if they're not constantly working – that, you know, something's wrong. And so we really want to try to combat that.
0: So you're an instructor of religious studies as well. And I wanted to know if you've drawn parallels between uh, religious traditions of a day of rest and also exploring this concept of doing
2: nothing. Oh, that's a great, um, that's a great connection. I hadn't really thought about that particular connection. Um, you know, I, I study and teach Buddhism primarily. So, um, you know, I, I also occasionally teach courses on meditation. Right now I'm co-teaching a course with a colleague in the psychology department about meditation. And we see from psychological studies the benefits that meditation can have on your brain and um, your sense of well-being. And even, you know, some studies have gone as far as to, to show the physiological benefits of slowing down and, and meditating. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the idea of a day of rest, that's kind of an interesting idea. Um, I guess that just kind of shows that historically we have incorporated, um, these periods of slowing down into our lives. And I think the way things are going in our society now, we don't, we don't have that anymore. We don't make space for that.
0: So will there be homework in this class?
2: (laughs) You know, um, there's, there's some homework in this class, but it's all optional. So the first day of class, um, one of my colleagues who's a psychologist came in and talked about sleep hygiene. And she talked about the importance of getting enough sleep. She showed studies that showed a correlation between um, getting enough sleep and having a higher GPA, So um, which was really surprising to students, I think. And, you know, so one of the things that that she did with students was she had them make a sleep plan, um, you know, to ensure that they were getting enough sleep. But in terms of, you know, traditional papers or exams or anything like that, we're not doing that in this class.
0: So how has the student reception been so far? What do they think?
2: You know, from the handful of students who I've talked to, they seem to enjoy it. Um, it's really different from the norm. And I think especially the first couple of, of, of weeks that we met, there was a little bit of hesitancy. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're doing is we're asking our students to show up as their whole selves. And so some of the things that we do involve Um, embodied practices, we did a whole mindful walking exercise, and students had to walk around alone outside for half an hour, you know, without looking at their phone, without listening to their AirPods. Um, And some of them were had a really hard time with that. Um, You know, it was just a a new thing. Um, And to be asked to do that for a class um, was, I think, surprising, for some of them but overall so far the reception has been really good
0: so this is the first semester of the doing nothing course but as you're working through things right now do you see a possible expanded course a possible three credit course in the future
2: you know i think one of the things that um that we like about this course is basically this course the way that Our credits and things work um, at Lawrence. We're we're not quite on the semester system. We have these 10-week terms. So this course is one unit, which is about the equivalent of one-sixth of a standard course um, at Lawrence. So what's nice about this is that students aren't – they're not paying extra tuition to take the course. They're not overloading their schedules, which are already pretty busy. Um, so this, our, our goal is not for this course to replace any part of our standard curriculum, um, but we still want it to be a class that students earn some credit for and that shows up on their transcript. Um, and on the other side of that, the way that we have this course set up, a different member of our community, we've got faculty, we've got staff, we've got a couple of deans who are coming in to teach classes. Um there's a different person who comes in every week. So it's kind of minimal work on the part of each of the individual instructors, um, which means that they don't, you know, they're not getting paid extra for it. So um, that, that was kind of our idea behind this class was to intentionally make it low stakes and not the same amount of um, work and effort as a, as a standard class.
0: And lastly, Connie, is there anything that you've learned yourself from the students, uh, Some any helpful tips or tricks in the uh, practice of doing nothing over the last few weeks?
2: You know, I think one of the things that I have noticed over the last few weeks, just in observing students and, and other folks who are coming in and, and participating in these class meetings is just um, – how open some of them are, even though they're, they're uncomfortable in some of these situations and doing new things and doing things that they might not be, be familiar with. Um, just the openness that, that people are bringing to, to class is just really inspiring. And it, it makes me want to kind of cultivate that openness in the other classes that I'm teaching and in my other interactions with, with my colleagues and with my students.
0: Dr. Connie Kasser is an associate professor of religious studies at Lawrence University. The White House recently rolled out its online student debt forgiveness portal. The first step of a program meant to relieve millions of borrowers from costly educational loans. For many, the process of paying for college can be stressful and confusing. The best of our knowledge is Jody Cowan spoke with students and parents on the campus of the Public University at Albany in New York to learn about their understanding of the financial aid process.
1: I am a junior. I have a double minor as well in Women and Gender Studies and Political Science. My parents are immigrants. They came from Dominican Republic, so they did not know anything about the college process here in the U.S. So, like, I had to figure everything out by myself. I've actually been pay- paying for my uh, education, like for college, like by myself, like because like I just don't want to burden my parents, even though they want to offer help. So yeah, it's just like been very critical and very like you gotta do this type of stuff. Yeah.
2: This issue of student loans is so bearing and it's, it's such a big weight on, pe- on young people especially because we're going to be the ones that are next generation buying houses. And if we can't afford that, if we can't afford to pay the 300 bucks, 400 bucks, whatever it is for that loan, how are we going to be able to afford a mortgage? How are we going to be able to afford a family? How are we going to be able to afford a car? So th- I, I, we're going to see a, a
1: stagnation in our economy if we don't figure this out.
0: I'm hanging out at the financial aid office here on SUNY campus. Uh, you
2: guys are applying for uh, a loan at the moment? I believe so, yes. Well, technically, we're trying to figure out if we actually need a loan or not. So there's some question marks as to whether uh, how much we t- actually owe versus what's on the website. It's, it's pretty confusing. Secondary to that, yeah, we're asking questions if we are eligible at this time for the loan forgiveness, being that she's still in and in, in everything. To be fair, we haven't researched it that much either. But since we had so many questions built up, we're here in person. It's absolutely daunting to me whether it should be or not, right? It's just one of those stresses in our life, right? Definitely stressful. <laughs>
0: you, you work here on campus, and I, you know, I've been talking to people kind of specifically about, you know, the financial aspect and potentially burden of their educational experience. Uh, what was your educational experience like in as far as the paying for such a thing? Uh, well, here at Albany, I was a grad student, so I didn't pay, but uh, I did take loans for my undergraduate. Um, so did my wife. My wife was here, got a PhD. She did take graduate loans. Um, yeah, it was rough. This past week, they they just unrolled the the beta testing of the website for loan forgiveness. What was life like before this week? What was the what's life like this week? It's a big relief. Obviously, it would be great uh, if they could do something to affect the cost of tuition. Now, I think that's probably more effective. But, you know, personally for us, it was a huge deal. And I know I've talked to a number of my students here who I teach who also feel greatly relieved to have 10 grand knocked off of what they're coming out with. That was Albany Jr. Jatnya Tavares, Jr. Joshua Chang, sophomore Jocelyn Buffard, and her father James, and university English professor James Searle speaking with the best of our knowledges Jody Cowan. And before we go, a little dinosaur news. A so-called swift-footed lizard that lived millions of years ago in what's now Massachusetts has been named the Bay State's official dinosaur. Legislation designating the new state dino was signed by Governor Charlie Baker during a ceremony at Boston's Museum of Science. The governor said dinosaurs were the main reason he became interested in science as a kid.
2: And the main reason they got me interested is because of their majesty and their ferocity and, um, and their almost alien being status. A
0: carnivore, Pedocosaurus Holiocensis received more than 60% of the roughly 35,000 votes cast in a social media contest. The scientist who discovered Pidokasaurus, Migden Talbot, is recognized as the first woman to describe and classify a non-bird dinosaur. The creature was three to six feet in length, weighed about 90 pounds, and was estimated to run nine to 12 miles per hour. It thrived in the Jurassic period, 190 to 174 million years ago, and you can still view its footprints today in Holyoke. This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. You can find us on Twitter at t b o o knowledge. To hear past episodes, visit our flagship station's website, WAMC.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard.